We have to be students of the word. You know, sometimes we could even, you know, one of the reasons before we even start talking tonight about Mark, it is imperative that we realize that we live in a day and age where we hear so many messages, but there are few Christians that really know the word of God. And what I mean by that is like really know, like have read this book, read it from cover to cover, not just heard somebody preach a few scriptures out of this book. I'm talking about a deep love for the word of God. I'm talking like holding this book and saying, Holy Spirit, I need to see Jesus. I need him to be very known to my heart. I have to. It's my lifeline. And I, I just, if there, my deepest prayer is that this body, our body, would hunger for the word of God like nothing else. That is the only thing that's going to save us in this day and hour. Jesus says, those who endure to the end shall be saved. And there is so many people that are so easily distracted. And I am not speaking down. I know that distractions are very real. Is anybody in this room just say that they're, they're not distracted at all? I think we would all agree that there are distractions that we have to daily discipline ourselves to stay enamored with him. But what has he done for you? <laughs> like, sometimes we really, really just have to stop for a second. And I, I've been asking myself this question, this simple question. What is different in my life now that I know him before I did? Like, what is changed in my life? If you ask yourself that question and you can't find many things, something is wrong. Once you come to know him, everything should begin to shift and change. God's not faithful to what you want. He's faithful to his word. It's so important. And if you don't know what his word says, you're going to be very disappointed because I, I, I want to make a statement real quick. One of the most dangerous things you can do when you read the Bible is think that God thinks the way you think. <laughs> Did you know that that's what so many people do? They read the Bible and they immediately think God thinks like them. That is called self-interpretation. We're supposed to be transformed when we read this book. That means you have to humbly come to it and say, God, you are smarter than me. <laughs> FYI, he's smarter. That's amazing. I mean, it's a beautiful thing to admit that you're dumb. You're like, oh, you shouldn't speak bad about yourself. Without him. <laughs> Without him. We need him. We need to cling to him with everything. We've said it before. We never graduate from dependency. In fact, we just, we learn to lean more and more. And it's, it's so precious. So how we're going to start the Gospel of Mark is probably going to make you all laugh. We're not actually going to start with just the verses. I want to show you something to help you study Scripture better in a, in a way that's extremely fruitful. I think we need to know who Mark is. Could everybody say amen to that? Amen. Do you know how quick sometimes we'll just read 
something in the Bible and we have no clue who the author is. We have no clue who the audience is. We have no clue what the purpose of the book is. Now, the Holy Spirit is amazing and he will help us even in all those questions being unanswered. He's faithful to meet us where we're at. But as we become students of the word, as we begin to mature, we should begin asking the right questions. We should begin doing the right study. And I'm not going, you know what's amazing tonight is I'm not going to share anything about Mark that's not found in scripture. Did you know Mark appears a lot in the New Testament? Sprinkled throughout the letters in the New Testament to actually give us a paradigm, to give us a lens for who he is. And why is that important? Well, let me read Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 to you, which a lot of you know very well, but this will help set the tone for why we're going to take this angle. And it's that, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Did you know sin is a weight in your life? Jesus is the physician, and he saw sinners. He saw the weight pulling you down. You know, and I, I want to get off, but this is so beautiful. I was thinking about this the other day. <laughs> Did you know if there's an accident, and I know Nick Morris even with us tonight, with a, just if there's an accident in the road, and he works with police, and it's just we have to understand that if we're at a place that there's an accident, the police show up and the first thing that they do have to do is they have to figure out who did it. What's, you know, they have to find out who the culprit is, how this happened, but when a, when a physician shows up, a medic, they're not even looking for who did what, they're, th they're just there to bring healing. Isn't it amazing that when Jesus shows up to the wreck in your life, that he's there to bring healing. He's there to restore. And then the lawyers come. <laughs> and we're so glad that, that Jesus is, is not the lawyer, but he's the physician. He sees the sin in your life, and he wants to bring healing. That should restore your heart. That should make you realize that if, if you feel ridden down, if you feel weighed down by your sin, that he's actually the only one who can bring healing to that. But the enemy tries to convince you to run away from the only one who can heal you. He tries to make you think you're not worthy to stand in the presence of the only one who can heal you. The only one who can set you free. The reason we're able to lay aside every sin and weight which so easily ensnares us is because of the next verse. It says, let us run this race, run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking unto Jesus. Do you know what the best advice you could get? Hey, you got your eyes off him. Get your eyes back on him. Look at him again. Look at him again. See his merciful face. The author, everyone say the author. And the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. God is an author. What does that say? It, it means God loves telling stories. Did you know that each one of you, God, Paul even says that we're all living epistles, living letters. 
Did you know that your story reveals an attribute of God to this house? That the way that God has interwined, inter, interwoven himself with your life has actually bringing about a beautiful story. You see, it's our humility that hands God the pen of our lives. And it's our faith that releases the ink to put mercy and grace in every detail. It's, he's an author. And it's when we believe, it's when we put our faith in him that he writes the most glorious story with our lives. And that's why the body of Christ is so essential. Because when we hear each other's story, we hear what God is doing in each other's lives, our hearts begin to burn. Our hearts begin to hear the work of Christ. So why would Jesus, why would God give us four gospel accounts? Because it's important the way each person tells the story about how they see him. He didn't just give us one gospel account. He gives us four of them because there's a different angle. There's a different way that a person encounters him that just one account wasn't good enough. Does that speak to you? Does that make you want to know everything about Matthew? It makes me want to know everything about Mark. It wants me... I want to know who Luke is. I want to know who John is because God handpicked these four men to reveal Jesus to us. Why? How can we read them and not know who they are? I would want to know everything about them that I could because God said, the way you see me, the way that you heard about me needs to be sovereignly told to generations to come. That makes me want to know who Mark is before I just jump in. And I've jumped in so many times. And then when I find out more about the author, I find out more about the audience, all of a sudden, I can't read it the same way. I begin to feel the affections. I begin to feel the disposition of the writer. So are you following me? There's three specific things about Mark that we'll, that we'll talk about. And I really believe that tonight is going to be such a night of restoration. Like, when you find out Mark's story based off using the scriptures to paint a picture, you just go from one scripture to another scripture. And literally, if you use your mind and you let the Spirit speak to you, you will find that Mark might, even by the end of the night, be one of your favorite Bible characters. <laughs> He's not mine, but <laughs> he got really close. I really love John. And I mean, who can't love Paul? And Jesus. <laughs> Jesus knows my heart. He is everything. I'm so thankful that God chose unqualified messes of men and women to reveal him. <laughs> that gives us all hope. <laughs> that gives us all hope. He doesn't pick anybody that's perfect or qualified. He actually loves revealing himself through imperfect vessels, fully relying upon the perfection of Christ. So, just a quick thing to see. Can I teach for a moment? 
I will teach and preach as the Spirit leads, but I need to teach for a moment. Some of you may know this, but for context, the four Gospels, without going through all of them right now, if you're more new to studying the Word or you've read the Word but you've never desired to actually study it like a book and really find out things about it outside of just kind of reading a couple things here and there, Matthew's gospel account was written to Jews primarily. It's very important to know because Matthew desires to reveal Jesus as the Messiah King to the Jews. So when he writes, he's very intentional to speak to the Jews. So you would really need to know the Old Testament very well to be able to really burn over Matthew with a lot of context. It's not to say you can't just read it, but it's important to know. Mark, which we're going to talk about tonight, was written to the Romans. And in our Sunday home groups, we're going through the book of Romans. That's why we're choosing Mark to go through on Tuesday to illuminate Jesus in such a way. In fact, Mark's gospel starts out by verse 1 saying, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What does Paul say at the beginning of, the, of Romans in 1.16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So Mark and Paul are, are in unison over the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Romans sharing. But when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel... Mark starts out saying, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of Mark's account. I'm not ashamed of the way Christ revealed himself in, in the flesh as a man. And it's important to see these things in Scripture. Luke, he wrote to the Greeks and we also know Luke wrote the book of Acts. That's why when we went through the book of Acts, Luke was a physician writing to an individual man, but it was to a Greek for the Greeks. And he revealed Jesus as the Son of Man and really emphasized the Holy Spirit. John does as well. But John wrote his gospel to the world. <laughs> he wrote it to the world to show Jesus is the Son of God, deity and humanity wrapped in flesh, bringing Jesus. So just knowing those things, Mark, he wrote to the Romans with this in mind. He wanted to reveal Jesus as the suffering servant. So why is that important? Because Mark actually, Mark actually uses Isaiah 53 and he puts Isaiah 53 on full display through an illustrative sermon of Jesus' life. That Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the one who suffered for us, this, this king of the universe who was willing to come and be a suffering servant, Mark is showing this. But what's really interesting about Mark is that John doesn't start with the genealogy. John starts with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, which shows that John says the genealogy of Jesus is he was in the beginning. But Matthew and Luke, they give us a very long genealogy, both for different reasons that we, we're not going to take time with tonight. But Mark doesn't give a genealogy. But the reason he doesn't give a genealogy is because a servant, somebody that's a servant, 
you don't need to know their genealogy because they're not worthy of a genealogy. So because Mark is trying to reveal Jesus as a servant, he doesn't put his genealogy because he's trying to reveal he's the servant of God. And it's interesting because all of a sudden you're, you're getting pulled into this that he just jumps right into because the only thing you need to know about a servant is what they did. How they served. And what's beautiful about the Gospel of Mark is you'll find so many times where Mark will highlight the way Jesus used his hands to touch lepers. That he would serve by being intimately acquainted. That he would use his hands. He would get in the mess with people. He would get involved with people. That he was a servant to all men. Where do we get Mark 10? Remember when Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but I came to be a slave to all, to serve all, and to give my life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 44 through 45. That Mark penned that. But why is Mark so convicted of this? What is his story? How did this even happen? And I, when I read these things, and I'm, I'm looking through the genealogy, and I'm finding that, do you know how important it is to serve? Like, do you realize that we're all called to serve? That we are only serving with the Spirit of Christ if love is gushing out of every act of service. Love for God and people should ooze out of every pore in our flesh. Love for God and people should radiate in every affection within our soul. Love for God and people. Isn't that what children should see in us? Love for God and people. What does it look like to love God? How do you show people you love God? Is it literally just singing songs to him or is it the way that we serve one another? Because I, I, I'm very, very familiar with Jesus washing the disciples' feet chronologically when they were fighting over who was the greatest. Who's the greatest? Jesus begins to wash their feet and says, as you love one another. It says that I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. And it says the world will know you're my disciples through the way you love one another. Not the way you sing. Not the way you dance. Not the way you even read scripture. Even though all those are beautiful things, it says the way we love one another. That there has to be something about the way that Jesus served that captivates us to serve. And here's, please hear me real quick. If you only serve others as a means or a launching pad to get you to where you really want to be. <laughs> did you hear what I said? If serving others is only a means or a launching pad to get you to where you really want to be. That means that you, you, you literally have no grid for how God came to this world to reveal his heart. He came to this world to reveal his heart through serving, which means that if you only serve for personal gain or personal advantage, it means you don't have a revelation that he has come to serve you. The more we realize who he is as a servant, it should cause us to want to serve. You know, it's so beautiful, even with our, like, just a practical example, even with the nursery and the kids' ministry and so forth. Do you know how in so many churches, kids' ministry or nursery is a burden? 
to people. But the person that has the microphone, that is, that's the glorious thing to do. That's, that's the real man of God. That's the real woman of God. Do you know that the only reason people can actually get touched by the presence of God and get a mom that's with her kids all the time, all day long serving, and she actually gets to sit in a service and be able to hear the word of God, be able to uh, hear it in a way where she's going through something, it, it, is the person holding the microphone preaching the hero, or is it the person that's actually showing their children the love of God in the back and serving? If we're the body of Christ, we got to be so watchful that, oh, that's the person really anointed. Okay, well, what about the person that greets somebody at the door faithfully and shows them the love of Christ before they walk in the building? Nobody's like, man, I really want to do that. Well, Jesus said, I really want to wash your feet. I really want to. I really desire to show you who I am. I really desire to serve. And once again, why push this so hard? Why? Because we're living in a day and age where everybody says, what can you do for me? What can I get out of this? What a horrible way to live. You always live with an insatiable, it, nothing will satisfy. You'll always look for another plan to manipulate your own way, own thing, and I, and I want to make it so clear, the reason that I'm even able to communicate these things is because I know, I've been there. I know the thoughts. Does anybody know what I mean? It's so easy to try to find your way. Did you know when we read in Romans 1 that when Paul says, I'm a debtor to all men. I'm a debtor to all men. He says, so I'm ready to preach the gospel. That means when you go to a restaurant, your waiter or waitress, you owe them love. You owe them a representation of Christ. The person who cut you off in, on the highway, in, you owe them love. You owe them a representation of Christ. But if you don't realize how in debt you were to who he his righteousness, who he is, you will not serve other people. You will feel entitled that people need to do what they're supposed to do for me when I pay, when I need it, and not realize that, yes, people do need to be held to responsible, that there, we need responsibility for the things that we're called to do, and there's a time for that. But you are never excused from representing Christ to people. Because you're like, do you know what they did to me? Do you, could you imagine Jesus on the cross while they're beating him? Hey, you know, I gave you, I gave you that, the ability to have that whip. I gave you the ability to have that hammer and nails. I gave, Jesus allowed them to show them love. And that's harsh. That's, that's a Christ that's hard to follow. Because that's a Christ that's willing to show love at any cost. And we all have a boiling point. We all have a there's, a, there's a level that we can't go to and the Holy Spirit is helping us to grow in that. But it's all through a heart of serving. Amen? So, let's look at a few verses. So Mark first appears in the book of Acts. 
It's like, I, I'm, I'm so amazed at the Bible. I've been studying it for close, for close to 20 years. And I didn't, and to be honest, I didn't get super passionate about studying the Bible probably until 15 years ago. But studying the word, not a day goes by where I'm not amazed. I can read the same thing and be like, I did not see that. How did he do it? Does <laughs> anybody read the Bible and just get it? Like, I hope that you, only, you don't only get excited at, at service. I really hope that if I was a fly on the wall in your house, that you would be smiling, even laughing when you read the Bible. That you would even weep. It's, a, it's an interactive story. He, he's telling us a story of his love. It's amazing. But in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, context, scene. Does everybody remember when we went through the book of Acts? And if you're not as familiar, Peter was put in prison. In Acts 12, he's put in prison. And the church was offering prayer up for him after James, one of the disciples of the Lord, who was martyred. He was one of the first apostles that was martyred. Stephen was not an apostle, but James, one of the disciples of the Lord, was martyred. And Peter was next on the block. And the church began to pray for Peter. And it says that an angel broke him out of prison. Isn't that awesome? Jailbreak in the Bible. It's awesome. Peter gets broken out. And in Acts 12, verse 12, it says, soon as Peter was freed and got out of prison, it says, so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So guess what? When Peter breaks out of jail, the first house he wants to go to is Mark's house. He gets out of prison and he wants to go to Mark's house because he knows it's a house of prayer. This tells us that Mark grew up in a house that honored the Lord. He grew up in a house that was willing to host other believers to come and love on the Lord. Can we all learn something right now? Parents, when people get out of a hard time, do the friends, do people in your life think of your house as a place to run to, to hear about Jesus, to hear about the Lord, that Mark's house, there was prayer being offered, there was people worshiping, and I have a few verses that I just want to hit on here because 1 Corinthians 4 I want to read this to you because this verse is so important for us tonight. As we were praying over the children tonight, 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 14, Paul says this, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. Do you know what the church is screaming for? They're, they don't need another sermon. They need to see an example. They need to see somebody that loves Jesus with every fiber of their being. 
They need to see Jesus in the way that you handle every decision in life. I want my children to see that even when I correct them in frustration, that I go to them and say, Daddy missed it. Daddy was wrong. And when they say, Daddy, it's okay, I forgive you, it's like, no, honey, I was wrong. And it's a teachable moment to show them that you honor repentance and that you honor him. And that parents, when you get in a dispute with your spouse, if your children hear it or other people see it, that you're willing to own it in front of your whole family and say, Jesus is Lord of this house. And that we're not going to suppress things and just move on. But God is a God of restoration, not a God of suppression. That you got to get it all out. People need to see fathers. Paul says it. You have many people that will give you cool little revelation on TikTok and on YouTube. And they can hide behind their camera and try to teach you things. And I'm not against teachers. And I, I, I'm so thankful for people that have t taught me from afar. And I'm thankful for th those platforms. But we all need to see a father, this is why a church body is so important. You need to see real marriages, real relationships. You hear me? And you need to see what it's like. Because a lot of people in today's age think ministry is just social media. Or they think that ministry is just taking the most polished pictures. When really, ministry is when you miss it, how do you own up to it? Real Ministry under Jesus is when everything in my life seems to be against me and I have every excuse to not continue to be faithful, I choose to be faithful. I choose to double down. When the enemy is throwing the kitchen sink at me and my family, I double down because I want my children and I want family and I want this church family to see that he's been so faithful to me that I owe it to everybody to show them how faithful he is. Even when I don't feel like it. Especially when I don't feel like it. Because that's what a father does. Do you know how many times my wife and I, and I'm just giving an example, and I know parents can relate. You know how many times our children have been sick at the same time or, or, or things like this, and all of a sudden you still have all your responsibilities, and now you have to juggle sick children, and you, have to, and you pray over them and all, and things, but you, you realize that you have to be there even more, even though everything else is screaming for your attention. You know you have to be a father. You know you have to be a mother. This is what Paul's talking about, that teachers can just give you a cool message and say, just go appropriate, but a father feels the burden of how the children are. And it's important that we hear Paul's heart because he goes on to say, you have many instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. I have begotten you through the gospel. Do you know, I want you all to know, anybody that has made a decision to follow Christ, even if it was your first time or you just genuinely had a radical encounter through this body, do you know how much that blesses us? Can we just... Thank the Lord even right now for the lives that are changed in this room by the gospel. Yes. Like, yes. like it's, 
It's so easy for us to just get familiar with one another and not realize we are all miracles. That the sovereign hand of the Lord has pulled us out of the pit to come together to sing to him and to read the scriptures together. He put us together because he's a good father. He goes on to say, therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is, did you notice Paul didn't say, just imitate what I say to you? He says, imitate me. How comfortable would you feel if your life is the sermon, not how elegantly you can talk about it? If you are the sermon, and you, what if you couldn't talk? Would people still know Jesus? by watching you. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ. I teach everywhere in every church. When Paul wanted to show how much of a father he was, he sent a son. Does that sound familiar? That when God wanted to show us how great of a father he was. He sent his son. Why would we bring this up? Well, I'm going to show you about Mark, if you hold tight. Colossians 4.10 tells us something interesting about Mark as well. Colossians 4.10 says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. He has friends in prison. Did you know we should have friends in prison? Jesus says, when you went to the prisons, you visited me. Do you know we have a jail ministry here? That every week, Mike Morris and Judd go to the prisons every Thursday. If you want to get involved with that, and I know women, we want to start the prison ministry for the women, but did you know I believe every man and woman, but we can do it for men, I believe every man should go to the prison. And you don't, have to have, you don't have to be the one preaching. Just go in the room and weep. Just go in the room and thank the Lord that you could be a witness. I mean, it's so important. Sometimes you just need to humble yourself. Like we talked about outreach. We talked about the prayer room. We have so many opportunities for you to humble yourself. Humble yourself away from your busy schedule and remind yourself that this life's going to be over really soon. And you're going to have to give an account for how you spent your busy life just important. You know, I'm not saying you have to be at everything, but once in a while you need to just be like, you know what? I'm a little distracted. I'm just going to prostrate myself in the prayer room. I'm just going to go out on the streets and listen to Zeke break it. Like, I'm just going to, whatever I got to do. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Did you know Mark was Barnabas' cousin? We went through this a little bit in Acts, but this is very important that Barnabas was a huge part of the book of Acts, especially when they started living together. He was the one that initiated the biggest giving. They called him the son of encouragement because he brought some of the biggest offering to, to stabilize the beginning and the early church. And Barnabas is Mark's cousin. And if Mark's 
household was able to host a whole group of people praying, it must mean that they did come from some wealth, okay? Because if Barnabas was able to bring a huge offering and Mark had a big home for people to come and pray, did you see that they actually used their resources for the kingdom of God? And God saw that and he had favor on them for using what they had for the Lord. Isn't this awesome? And the reason it's important we know about Barnabas is because, and I just want right before we move forward, the parenting family is so important. This is why when Peter went to Cornelius' household, he said, you and your whole household shall be saved. Because he saw that when the gospel infiltrated a family, cousins would get saved. Brothers and sisters would get saved. When Jesus even called the disciples, he called brothers. This is why family is so important. This is why people in this room, your prodigal sons and daughters or your wayward family members, you got to keep contending. Do you hear? Don't, don't grow weary. Don't say it's just getting worse and worse. I actually say praise the Lord is getting worse. Because just when you think they're running as far away from God as possible, they're going to run right into him. <laughs> God says, I'd rather you be hot or cold. Let them get cold, cold, cold. Eventually they'll get it. It's actually, it's actually, that's God's mercy allowing it to get worse so they wake up. And you're like, that doesn't make sense. Well, this whole thing is that the devil is an instrument. Some people think there's a war between God and the devil. He already won. The enemy, the enemy is his instrument. And I know, I know that can be hard doctrinally and theologically. It's by faith, my friends. We have to see when we look at this that when it comes to parenting as well, we know this, that in Deuteronomy 6, did you know when God gives the greatest commandment, which we know is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In Deuteronomy 6, we find that. Did you know right after that, God tells, it's Deuteronomy 6, God instructs the people of Israel before they enter the promised land. It says, you teach your children. You teach your children everything I've told you. You teach them how to love me. God, that was part of the covenant. Teach your children. Do you see why America's falling apart? It's broken covenant. Not teaching children, taking it out of schools. But we, before you, you say amen to that, I don't think we should get so mad at the schools for taking God out of school. We should be mad at ourselves and people's homes for taking God out of their homes. Let judgment come to the house of the Lord first and and he's so merciful when we repent. But it's, it's understanding, taking ownership. Proverbs 22, 6 says what? Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. How many people in this room are, is there any people, or is there any people in this room that are products of their, their parents or grandparents praying for them? You see these hands going up. Isn't that beautiful? How many want to be the parent and grandparent that's praying? For the children. You see, we don't, we, it's hard for us to honor that sometimes because we get so caught up in the moment that we forget God is generational. He's about generations. We're about, this is my moment, and God is preparing you to actually train the next generation to go further than you ever did. 
Because the biggest problem with revival in our day and age is people get so caught up in their own move of God that they don't move the next generation into it. They get so caught up with, oh, God's really moving on our behalf, and they don't realize they get prideful in the ways that they're experiencing God, and they put the kids in a classroom, and they're a burden to everybody. We need to raise up the next generation. I want people in this church to see parents loving Jesus in their households, not just at an altar, in a public altar, that we need to love God with everything. So Mark grew up in a household of faith. Do you see how much you can extract from one verse? <laughs> People might think I'm mad. I'm just obsessed. Possessed, yes, that's probably better. But Mark is... Acts 13.5 lets us know something about the missionary. He's a cousin of Barnabas, but Acts 13.5, it says, When Paul and Barnabas arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. And John and Mark are interchangeable. It's John's surname, Mark. So what was Mark? Mark was what? He was an assistant. All right, watch this. Mark was not a prophet. Mark was not an apostle. He was not somebody that was flowing in all these. He was an assistant. Is, there, is anybody catching why God might want him to tell about Jesus being a servant? Because he was an assistant. He wasn't the one that everybody looked to. He wasn't the one. He was the one holding Paul's and Barnabas's resources. They're, they're, he was holding their stuff, holding things. But he had, he had a front row seat to God miraculously moving in the early church, seeing it all, getting to hear, getting to see all these things. And why are we, why are we sharing this? Because this is giving us context. But this isn't even the best part. This is just a few little details. It gets even better. Because in Acts 13.3, we find, now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John departed from them and returned to Jerusalem. Mark bailed! Mark bailed! He deserted Paul and Barnabas. Could you imagine you're on an important mission preaching the gospel and somebody says, I miss home. I miss mommy. My tummy aches. I had a bad day at work. Somebody said something to me. Mark leaves. Why would God ever use Somebody that bailed. We'll get there. Do you see that even in the author, there's mercy in the details? 
Did you know Mark, him doing this, we find that in Acts 15, that when Paul and Barnabas come back to Jerusalem, that's where Mark was from. Mark's in Jerusalem with his tummy ache and, and getting fearful because, it, you know, Paul was casting demons out. Things were happening. He, he might have been like, this is intense. You know, he come back to Jerusalem, and then after they have this big meeting, Paul and Barnabas are about to hit the road again, and Barnabas says, let's get Mark. You know what Paul says? I don't want him. He's not loyal. He's non-committed. This is serious what we're doing. But Barnabas is what? He's an encourager. It's his cousin. He's like, come on, Paul. Let's give him a second chance. Paul's like, no. <laughs> Did you, I want you all to see that they're actually both biblical truths, though. Paul takes this so seriously that he is more of the sobering approach. He's the one that when he gets up to preach, everybody's running to the altar. He's the narrow way. <laughs> but Barnabas carries this heart of mercy. And that's why God used them both. And what they actually do is Mark's, the way that Mark operated and when he ran home, that it actually causes Paul and Barnabas to split up because of Mark. Could you imagine being Mark and feeling like you're the reason that two ministries are going separate ways? Could you imagine the weight Mark feels? That Paul and Barnabas are doing great things together and because of me, they're going to split up. The trauma. Like Mark's like, man, I'm sorry. If we're all honest, we... we we're, we're, we're hearing this, and we all know Mark now. We all identify with Mark. We've all been at a place where we've, we've loosened on our commitment or our loyalty to the Lord, to these things. But you all had mentioned it earlier, and I, I want to show us that this is where we talk about restoration, our final moments. Go to 1 Peter 5. Did you notice I said Peter? I want to show you a little detail. A little gem in Scripture. 1 Peter 5, verse 13. When Peter is ending his first epistle, he says, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Now, this is not, he's not speaking literally. The, the, the Greek text is speaking of an affection so dear that you treasure him just like your own son. So why would this be so important that we see this little detail? Because Peter denied the Lord, right? And if Peter looked at Mark as a son, Guess what? When we read the Gospel of Mark, maybe who are we really hearing from? Maybe we're hearing from Peter. Because Peter would share with Mark the way he encountered Jesus. And not only would he share the way he encountered Jesus, but he would be able to father Mark 
And that when Mark departed and he ran away from the call, that Peter could come to Mark and say, Mark, it's okay. I denied the Lord. And he came and he restored me. And he even empowered me to be the first one to preach on who he was when I was the worst. I denied him. And he restored me. Mark, you're not too far gone. Mark, you're not too far gone. He's merciful. Yes, you missed it. Yes, you did. And you need to own up to it. But he's faithful. Did you know I even told the Lord I would never deny him. And he told me to my face that you will. And then I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail you. He's telling Mark, he's faithful. He's merciful. He will serve you restoration. And why is this so important? Because we're all wanting to know how this ends. Where's the, what's the details? But I want you to see that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, who wrote Timothy? Paul. Now, Paul writes Timothy, and you know what 2 Timothy is? 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter. He's on his martyr's bed. He is about to die for the gospel. And in the final chapter of his letter, this is what he says, 9 through 11. Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful for me in ministry. Paul, who didn't want anything to do with Mark, is now on his deathbed saying, bring me Mark, because he's useful for ministry. Because Peter fathered him back to life. He had a spiritual father that said, God is merciful. And Paul saw the maturity in him. And Paul invited him and said, because you're talking about Paul is about to go on to glory. And he's saying the one that he refused to travel with is now fit to carry on the legacy. Does this sound like the gospel? Does this does this transform your heart? Does this make you want to dive into the book of Mark and just say, wow, this is who he is? He was writing it from this perspective. He had been restored. And when he's talking about Jesus being a servant, he was a servant. He was restored. He grew up in a household of faith. This is who Mark is. And I just want to read a few verses of mercy and worship team, you can come. We shared this a few weeks ago, but right before I read those verses on mercy, I want to share this, that this is only found in the gospel of Mark. In chapter 16, verse 7, when we speak of Peter restoring Mark, this is the only gospel where we find when Jesus rose from the grave and the angels are telling the disciples telling the women to go tell the disciples, it says, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, and as he said to you, only Mark's 
account brings up that when the Lord rose from the grave, that he called out Peter's name, even though Peter denied him. Because what did, what did Jesus preach? He said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. But when Jesus rose from the grave, whose name is on his lips? Peter. And that even when Mark could have felt that he had gone wayward and gone, that there was Peter who fathered him back and showed him the gospel, showed him who God was. I want to read these verses of mercy to you. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. A lot of us know this well, but I want to just read it over your hearts tonight. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. James 3, 17 through 18. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. First Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I don't know about you, but the flaming fire of his love melts my heart into a puddle of mercy. That's all I, I, I'm left with. I don't know if you all realize how grateful we need to be that he's merciful. If you're in this room tonight, hear me so clear through the life of Mark. If you think you have missed it, if you think that you have done something, that you are too far gone, that you cannot get back into good graces with God, I'm here to tell you, if you have a breath in your body, that breath is a reminder that he is merciful. That tonight, you are not here by accident. There's a reason that even with everything projected today in the storm, that we would be able to gather, come together, so that you could hear the waves of his mercy wash over you and realize that you can be restored. There are some of you that have made grave mistakes. I'm not here to belittle sin. I want you to know that God is merciful, but he does not wink at sin. That sin is a big deal to God. That's why he paid the price he did. And there has never been a time that Jesus has given a harsh word to anyone that was not saturated and gushing with love. That's why, once again, we only find in the Mark's gospel with the rich young ruler that it says that when he told him what he had to give up to follow him, it's, it's the only gospel where it says, looking at him, he loved him.
It, all the other gospels that give an account of the rich young ruler don't say that he loved him when he ministered. But Mark realizes that the correction of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord, the chastisement of the Lord is his mercy and love calling me into my purpose. Tonight, stop making another excuse to stay away. Stop making another excuse to stay back at Jerusalem when you're being called on the mission field, on the front lines. There's people in this room that think that you're not called to be on the front lines because you got too much, you've done too much, you've gone away too much, you've been so noncommittal, you've been unloyal. Tonight, will you jump into the commitment of God? Will you let his faithfulness not just woo you, but will you allow his faithfulness to produce faithfulness in you? Will you not just be moved by his commitment, but will you allow his commitment to you produce a commitment in you to others and to the body of Christ? That's what we're talking about. Mark wasn't just restored to feel better. He was restored to give a testimony to all. Mark served us all by telling us who Jesus was through his account. Now it's time for you to live your life to share the account of how you've experienced his mercy and restoration.